Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This podcast is called From My Archives. In the mid-1970s, when I finally settled down to be a grown-up and pursue what I thought would be my life's work in the theater, I lived in the pre-gentrified East Village of Manhattan. It was still a genuine bohemian and working-class enclave. Poet Allen Ginsberg and novelist William Burroughs lived in the neighborhood, and my friends and I, hoping to make art that would be important, felt like we'd walked into the heart of what was not yet called mid-century artistic life, and we didn't realize that the party was almost over. We were the last ones in the banquet hall. As time passed and that era drifted into the deeper channel of history, I have often wondered about the origins of that post-war, mid-century explosion of culture in New York. A few years ago, the BBC gave me a chance to write some essays exploring the origins of the Bohemia whose last flickerings I lived in. Two of them follow, but before we get started, a reminder. My podcast is an independent production. It survives on the donations of listeners. If you haven't already, please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, or my SoundCloud page, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. And now, the stories of two men who became friends at the beginning of the cultural explosion. Marlon Brando and James Baldwin. In mid-1945, when the world finally stopped pulling itself to shreds, something quite remarkable happened. While the traditional centers of Western culture smoldered, in New York City, an artistic renaissance burst forth out of the city's bohemia. In music, especially jazz, in painting, in theater, at the intersection of race and culture and literature and what was not yet called lifestyle. I'm not the only person to have noticed. It's a phenomenon that still has cultural scholars writing books and monographs. Aside from the great leap forward so much of the work represents, what I've always wondered about is, where did this come from? If you think about the conformism and single-minded purpose in American society necessary to mobilize and win wars in Europe and the Pacific in about three and a half years, less than the length of a single presidential term of office, it's quite extraordinary. Just as fascinating is that most of this work was generated in a single neighborhood of Manhattan, bounded in the north by 14th Street, and on the south by Houston Street, in the east by 4th Avenue, and in the west by Hudson Street, or, if you were homosexual, the Hudson River Docks. Greenwich Village. Bohemian nonconformity, for men at least, was signified by wearing an undergarment, the T-shirt, in public as a normal form of dress. Go through old photos of the U.S. from the 1930s and the war years, and what you notice is that in the Depression, men, even when queuing at soup kitchens, wore suits or at least jackets. Many wore neckties. During the war years, photos show that even after a hard day of combat, men wore their uniform blouses over their T-shirts, except in the boiler rooms of ships and submarines, where T-shirts were permitted. The impression is a man would no more wear only his undershirt in public than his pajamas. The T-shirt had evolved from the old-fashioned union suit, a one-piece top-to-bottom form of underwear. The top bit was buttoned shut. As the 19th century gave way to the 20th, the union suit became a two-piece item, and then the buttons, which had a tendency to fall off, were replaced by the round-neck pullover. Why is it called a T-shirt? 
Spread one flat. It looks like a tea. Well, sort of. The New York Bohemians seemed to live in them. The most famous of these T-shirts was pulled snug across the beautifully muscled body of Marlon Brando, but that was by design for the play A Streetcar Named Desire, which opened in 1947. Brando had arrived in New York from the Midwest wearing one in 1943, just around his 19th birthday. He was primed for bohemian life. Father, heavy-drinking philanderer, frequently absent, emotionally and physically abusive when at home. Mother, alcoholic and promiscuous. Marlon, the youngest of three children and the only boy, ill-disciplined and given to pranks to, what, called attention to himself? But there was art in the home. In Omaha, Nebraska, where Marlon was born, his mother was the leading lady of the local Little Theater. In the 1920s, the Little Theater movement swept the middle of America, non-commercial in its intentions, a form of civic betterment in growing prairie cities like Omaha. Dodie Brando, in addition to starring in plays, introduced a friend's younger brother, Henry Fonda, to the stage. But the family moved several times following Marlon's father's well-paid work until the parents separated and the teenage Brando was shipped off to a military prep school from which he was expelled just short of graduation. He should have gone straight into the army but failed his draft physical, he claimed because of a bad knee. His older sisters, one an actress, the other an artist, had already made the move to New York, and he moved in with Francis, the painter, in a small flat on Patchen Place, a former muse in Greenwich Village just off 6th Avenue, less than five minutes' walk from the New School, where he began his acting studies. The New School for Social Research was founded in 1919 by several progressive academics, including America's preeminent philosopher of the time, John Dewey, and its most radical economist, Thorsten Veblen. It was set up as a continuing education institution. Fifteen years later, when the Nazis seized power in Germany, many intellectuals and academics, most of them Jewish, like Hannah Arendt, fled and ended up in New York teaching there, and the new school set up the university in exile for them. In 1939, Germany's foremost theater director, Erwin Piscator, not Jewish, arrived in the city just before the outbreak of war and was asked by the new school's director to set up a theater workshop. Piscator was a good fit with the underlying left-wing politics of the new school. He made epic theater not for spectacular entertainment, but for spectacular socio-political education. Besides the exiles who followed him and were able to gain entry as the U.S. borders began to shut against refugees, he found a ready-made faculty in New York. The Group Theater, the company that had essentially rerouted American theater from drawing room comedies and light entertainment in the British style to social realism born of the economic catastrophe of the Depression, had disbanded under the weight of its many egos, and some of the group's leaders ended up teaching at Piscator's new school workshop. The group was a company of actors and directors who had redefined mainstream American theater, not just in themes, but in acting style. The psychological naturalism, pioneered at the Moscow Art Theater by director Konstantin Stanislavsky, replaced the broad, hammy gestures that were still common on the American stage. 
One of the group's leaders, Stella Adler, had actually gone to Paris to study with Stanislavski at the end of his life, and she was a leading teacher at the new school. Marlon Brando enrolled in her class. She noticed him immediately, not for his looks or his talents, but for his clothes. The other students were well turned out. Acting was a profession, one dressed professionally. Brando arrived in T-shirt and jeans. Stella made her entrance. She always made a grand entrance to start a class, surveyed the room, noticed the new student. Who's the bum? Mr. Vagabond, please stand up. Brando did. She asked his name. He told her. If I hear of a play with a part for a bum, I will recommend you. Or so the legend goes. The fact is that soon the pretty teenager, the puppy thing, as Stella called him, was taken up by her. He became a regular visitor to the vast apartment where the sprawling Adler clan lived. Stella was theatrical royalty of the Yiddish branch of the art form. Her parents had been the foremost actors of the Yiddish theater, and she had started working on the stage at the age of five. Her cousins and mother lived in the flat along with her own family. She was married to Harold Klerman, that rarest of birds, a theater critic who was also a theater practitioner, and rarer still, highly successful at both. The blonde-haired teen from a broken home in the Midwest was overwhelmed by the Jewish tumult of the Adler-Klerman household, emotional and intellectual. Guests dropped by, Aaron Copeland and his protege Leonard Bernstein, for example. He was in the heart of the Jewish branch of New York high culture. The Adler patronage was crucial. Stella recommended him for his first Broadway role, not as a bum, but as the oldest son in I Remember Mama, a play about a Norwegian immigrant family's struggles. Her recommendation carried weight. Brando's audition was terrible, but he still got the part. It was 1944. The war was still on, but not in Bohemian New York. There was a wildness and sexual openness. Maybe war-inspired, we're all going to die young, live for today. But maybe not. Whatever. After the abuse and embarrassment of his Midwestern life, the young actor was a tabula rasa of physical perfection and sexual openness. Thirty years later, my first acting teacher, Herbert Berghoff, a refugee who had made it into the U.S. with Piscator and who also taught Brando at the new school, chuckled in class, there were a lot of pregnant girls at the new school when Marlon was around. It's likely Brando and Stella also became lovers. And why not? The more than 20-year age difference would count for nothing in the best tradition of Bohemia, and he was the most beautiful man in New York, but also talented in a way that no one had ever seen before. There's a theoretical and practical contradiction at the heart of Stanislavski teaching. The goal is to perform in the moment, so the actor seems to be living the truth of life on stage in front of the audience. The practical reality is that by the time you arrive at performance, you have been through weeks of analyzing the script and rehearsal, you're working with other actors and need to feed off them, but they might interpret the script differently. A director has been overseeing your movements and the shaping, the pacing of the play, and with all that going through your head, you are then supposed to be on stage and acting as if what is happening is happening for the first time and only to you. You are saying words you've taken weeks to memorize, expecting to hear backwards your fellow actors have taken weeks to memorize, and yet it is all supposed to create in the audience a sense this is happening right now. 
Brando was a terrible reader at auditions and in his short career on stage was famous for floundering around in rehearsal, making directors and producers wonder if they had made a mistake. But then something would happen, and what the audience saw was not what people endured in the rehearsal. Brando's next performance demonstrated this. Truckline Cafe was directed by Harold Klerman, who cast Marlon as Sage McRae, a recently returned veteran who finds his wife has taken up with another man. The actor had one long scene in which he races into the eponymous roadside cafe, disheveled, frantic, and confesses to killing his wife. A horrendous tale. Brando was awful in rehearsal. Clerman's producing partner, Ilya Kazan, not a bad director himself, pitched in. The first preview approached. Brando took to running up and down the stairs in the back of the theater to arrive on stage exhausted and frantic. And he did the scene and got exit applause. Told about murdering his wife and still got exit applause. Why? Because people had never quite seen the immediacy of an actor living the experience of his character with such intensity and truth within the circumstances of the script, about the script. It was written by Maxwell Anderson, whose Pulitzer Prize-winning style would not survive the war. The play closed after eight performances, but Brando's reputation was made. A year after came Streetcar Named Desire. The story of his casting is well known. Stanley Kowalski was supposed to be played by John Garfield, a group theater alumnus who, after the company's collapse, went to Hollywood and became a film star. He didn't want to sign a long-term contract. Brando, way too young for the part, was brought in to read. In the small world of T-shirt bohemia, with its open sexuality, the actor already knew the playwright Tennessee Williams from summers in the gay mecca of Provincetown on Cape Cod. Even with Ilya Kazan directing, rehearsals were a mess. A few weeks in, the costume designer, Lucinda Ballard, was walking in Manhattan and saw some workmen digging a ditch for some new electrical cabling. It was hot. They were stripped down to their T-shirts. Inspired, she bought a package of teas. Any cheap store stocked them, washed them for about 24 hours until they were thoroughly shrunk, and summoned Brando for a costume fitting. The garments hugged his body and massaged the character out. The rest of the story... The triumphant opening, months into the run, Brando getting his nose broken, sparring with a stagehand, finishing the performance bleeding, the terrible friction with his British co-star Jessica Tandy, who could not adjust to the fact that the actor would be different in some way every night, because the truth about life is that it does not repeat itself precisely, and his art was about bringing the truth of life on stage every night. That was what Stella Adler taught. And it ain't easy to do. After his run was over, Brando never appeared on stage again. But his legend still hovers over every generation of attractive young men who go to New York to become actors, and even those of us who weren't so pretty. Precisely 30 years after Streetcar opened, I studied with Stella Adler. She still made grand entrances to class. She still gave peerless lessons in the technique of bringing the truth of life onto the stage. Doing exercises, many young actors would inadvertently do a Brando imitation. I see what you're doing. You want to be Marlon. You have to be yourself. Marlon was a genius. She would say this gently, then stand up. He understood that after the war, men were broken. 
and then instantly her body would slouch in a perfect imitation of the famous production photo of Marlon as Stanley slouched against the mantelpiece in his New Orleans flat. All that was missing was the T-shirt. In Zurich during World War I, the Odeon Café became the gathering place for a remarkable collection of exiles waiting out the war. James Joyce, Vladimir Lenin and his wife Nadezhda Krupskaya, Dadaists, revolutionaries, artists and intellectuals of all sorts, stranded, waiting. Sir Tom Stoppard's often revived play, Travesties, imagined some of these people coming together in the baffled memory of a British consular official, Henry Carr. I wish an American playwright of comparable talent would set their imagination roaming through a café in Greenwich Village 30 years later, full of a different collection of revolutionaries, artists, exiles, living in their own country. The Calypso Café on McDougall Street, the play would take place on a night in late 1943 or early 1944 when a selection of the regulars were in, some famous and notorious like Paul Robeson and Henry Miller, some on the cusp of fame and notoriety like Eartha Kitt and Marlon Brando, and over in the corner there, nursing the perpetual anger brewing inside him, a fellow named Malcolm Little who had yet to rebel against his slave name, as he would call it, by changing it to Malcolm X. Waiting table is an aspiring author, James Baldwin. How would you imagine such a gathering? The Calypso Cafe was that rare thing in America, and for that matter New York, a place where black and white people mixed, hung out, and thanks to the guidance of Connie Williams, its owner and presiding light, managed, as much as it is ever possible in my benighted homeland, to forget color. Although color, race, was what the 20-year-old waiter could not escape and knew would have to be a theme of everything he wrote. But there was another theme James Baldwin was wrestling with. How to carve an individual identity and express himself and his own experience within this society. Most of the artists gravitating towards Greenwich Village as the war ground on wanted the same thing, but they were white. As he delivered the Caribbean goodness to the customers and bantered with them, the young writer was going through a series of crises of identity. Black in a white world, yes, but also acknowledging his homosexuality and a religious crisis that had been brewing for several years and reached a climax with the death of his stepfather, a storefront Pentecostal preacher in Harlem. James had been born illegitimate. At the age of two, his mother married David Baldwin, a laborer, the couple had eight more children. Baldwin's relationship with his stepfather was tortured. The man was strict, rage-filled against the white world and the sinful culture which surrounded him. His stepson was blessed with intellectual gifts beyond his father's and perhaps even his own comprehension, including the two most precious for any writer, a curiosity about others, and words, a stunning fluency with words. 
Baldwin, from the age of 14, used that fluency as a preacher at his father's storefront church, but also in school, where a succession of teachers took him under their wings, including poet County Cullen, a key figure of the Harlem Renaissance, who encouraged him to step outside the neighborhood for high school. So he applied to Cullen's old school, DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx. It was an immersion into a different culture. Most of the students at DeWitt Clinton, an all-boys school, were children of Jewish immigrants. They were intellectual and ambitious. Among his broad contemporaries at Clinton were A.M. Rosenthal, who would become executive editor of The New York Times, Oscar-winning screenwriter Patty Chayefsky, playwright Neil Simon, and photographer Richard Avedon. Baldwin and Avedon worked closely on the school literary magazine. The competition among students for recognition in the wider world tells in the caption accompanying Baldwin's photo in the Clinton yearbook, Fame is the spur, and ouch. But surrounding this time was the need to help support his family, so he took a job after school on Canal Street in Lower Manhattan. His day went from Harlem to Clinton on 207th Street in the Bronx, down to Canal Street and back to Harlem. If you know New York City's geography, you can appreciate the schlep that represents a minimum three hours a day on the subway. And then, in his last year at Clinton, 1940, he was introduced to Beaufort Delaney, an African-American painter who had left the enclosed world of Harlem behind and taken the unheated top floor at 181 Green Street at the southern edge of Greenwich Village. Delaney, upon opening the door to his studio, looked at him and, Baldwin wrote years later, took an instant X-ray of my brain, lungs, liver, heart, bowels, and spinal column. The door being opened was by a gay black man pursuing his art without fear or favor. Delaney was the living example of what might be possible for Baldwin if he broke out of the unwalled ghetto that was Harlem and moved downtown to the Bohemian village. But first, there would be trials. At this moment in a normal white American life, James Baldwin would have gone on to an elite university. That was impossible for him. The long days on the subway, the preparation for his preaching duties had affected his grades, so college was out of reach. Besides, his stepfather was ill, no longer capable of working or preaching, so the aspiring writer had to work full time. The only upside was that he was given a draft deferment and so missed serving in America's segregated army in the war. And after doing too many jobs to tell you about, he ended up waiting table at the Calypso and traipsing around the village, sleeping here and there, moving in with Brando, who was not yet Brando, and writing a novel about himself, working title In My Father's House, because he understood at the tender age of 20 the life he had already led was like none that had yet been depicted in American fiction. It would be a long while before that novel was ready, but there were other words to write down, and there were places to publish. If you were an aspiring writer, in the immediate aftermath of the war, there were plenty of magazines to try out your lines in. They didn't pay all that much, but the city, certainly Greenwich Village, was not all that expensive. The buildings, for the most part, were old and unrenovated. It was still as much an immigrant neighborhood as a bohemian one. 
The magazines had grown out of the left-wing political ferment of the years before the war. There was a united front against fascism, but on the far side of the war, the factionalism that has always been a part of left-wing politics broke through. Factions had magazines, partisan review, commentary, the new leader, with small circulation but big ideas. The little magazines were as full of talent as Dewitt Clinton was, and not just Baldwin's alma mater. It is almost impossible to convey the level of learning that went on in New York City's high schools in the 1930s. It was a source of civic pride. The curriculum was challenging. The teachers, like County Cullen, were of the highest intellectual caliber. For many students, the ones whose parents came from shtetls and peasant villages in Europe or hamlets in the Jim Crow South, it was the engine that assimilated their children into what we call today Western culture, from which their forebears, time out of mind, had been excluded. The editors of the magazines and their contributors were graduates of this long-vanished education system. Most of them were Jewish. Many of them went on to higher education at City College of New York, which was free in those days. Among them were the editors of Commentary, the first magazine to publish Baldwin, an essay titled The Harlem Ghetto, which concluded, Just as a society must have a scapegoat, so hatred must have a symbol. Georgia has the Negro, and Harlem has the Jew. But before that essay was published, when he was not quite 24, there were years of hanging around the village with friends, showing Marlon his side of the tracks uptown, visiting him in his dressing room after a performance of Truckline Cafe, and marveling that the performer he had just seen suffering in front of an audience had turned back into his joke-loving pal so quickly. Another point to explore in the identity quest, the distance between the finished piece of work and the person who created it. Baldwin wrote often about how few blacks lived the bohemian life in this era. He joked there were only three in all of Greenwich Village. I doubt he was including Anatole Broyard in this calculation. Like Baldwin, Broyard was drunk on words, hoping to make himself known to the world. But Anatole Broyard carried a secret with him. He was very light-skinned and was passing for white. He was not the first in his family to do so. His parents from New Orleans had been, like Baldwin's parents, part of the Great Migration from the South to escape Jim Crow laws starting in the second decade of the 20th century. They settled in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, his father was a skilled carpenter, but the carpenters' union was segregated. He, too, was very light-skinned and claimed to be white to gain union membership. When Anatole Broyard enlisted in the army, he checked the box marked Caucasian on the form, was sent to officers' candidate school, and put in charge of a stevedore battalion of black soldiers who were part of the occupation force in post-war Japan. He arrived in the village in 1946, deep in his deception. Very few people have written about the t-shirt bohemia of the village with such love and style. We were all so grateful to be there, Broyard wrote in his memoir of those days. Kafka was all the rage. It was like a reward for having fought the war. A war is like an illness, and when it's over, you think you've never felt so well. There's a terrific sense of coming back, of repossessing your life. On the GI Bill, he enrolled at the New School. With some money scammed from the black market in Tokyo, he opened a bookshop, 
handsome, articulate, an excellent dancer of the Latin dances that were all the rage, Broyard became a bit of a celebrity in the village literary set, like him, just released from the war and thriving with ambition and optimism. Like Baldwin, he was drawn to the little magazine world, but because he was passing and because he was building a reputation as a seducer of women, and this was a very important part of someone's rep in that time and place, he found himself quickly sitting at the high table, writing for the Partisan Review, drinking in the San Remo Bar, a block down McDougal from the Calypso Cafe, with poet Delmore Schwartz and important cultural critics Dwight MacDonald and Clement Greenberg. Baldwin was also taken up, in his case by African-American novelist Richard Wright, author of Native Son and Black Boy, best-selling books published either side of the war. Wright arranged a writing grant for Baldwin to continue work on his coming-of-age novel. By 1947, the literary branch of Bohemia began to return to Paris. It was even cheaper than the village. Wright headed there, and a year later, so did Baldwin not just for the obvious reason, to escape the relentless pressures, internal and external, that America puts on a black man, but to get away from the homophobia of his own community and to have the space to be an individual in and of himself and to keep working on the novel that would ultimately be published under the title of Go Tell It on the Mountain. But he didn't leave the dress code of village bohemia behind. Visitors to his hotel in Saint-Germain noted he greeted them wearing khaki trousers and a T-shirt. Anatole Broyard stayed in New York. There was no reason to leave. He was published by the leading literary magazines, drinking with the village's best-known intellectuals, and there were many, many women to seduce. He published a short story about his father's death, and on the strength of that story and an outline, got an advance to write a novel that was more than 50 times as large as Baldwin got to write Go Tell It on the Mountain. Broyard never finished the book. Instead, he ended up as a book reviewer for the New York Times and became one of the most important literary tastemakers in the U.S., in the mid-70s, waiting at shape-up for my taxi shift to begin, I read his reviews, discussed them with others. You could disagree with his judgments, but you could never not be enthralled by his writing. It was too good for a newspaper. But he never completed a novel. A therapist might say living a fiction made writing it impossible. It was only on his deathbed that his grown children were told the truth about their father's and their own racial background. The mid-70s was the time of James Baldwin's long eclipse. He was derided by younger black writers as Martin Luther Queen and the Joan of Arc of the cocktail party. The homophobia inside the African-American community has long been noted. It was only in this century that a new generation of black readers and authors who grew up more integrated and wealthier, struggling to maintain their human authenticity in a nation that is still struggling with the legacy of slavery, has found in Baldwin the spiritual and intellectual father he was fated to be the moment he made the decision to leave Harlem behind for T-shirt Bohemia in Greenwich Village. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please visit the website and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.